There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police the arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. The scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. We know by now that we are judged by the way we look and the things that we are interested in. Regardless of how wrong it is, it's just a fact of life. So when you dress in all black, play D&D, and boast about your weapons collection, there is a solid chance people will suspect you of something nefarious. And while it's normally an unwarranted judgment, on January 4th, 1997, a girl died in Bellevue, Washington at the hands of exactly the type of person who the small town had suspected. So if you like your coffee hot, but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On January 4th, 1997, the body of 20-year-old Kimberly Ann Wilson was found by two boys playing at a local park. They initially thought her body was a pile of clothing just off the trail, but when they returned the next morning and saw that the pile was still there, they looked closer and realized what a horrible thing they had just found. They ran home to their mothers and one called the local police department. Kimberly had been clubbed over the head, stomped on and strangled, and coroners put her death on January 4th, likely only a few hours before the boys initially stumbled upon her remains. With the discovery of her body and identification came the event that most officers dread, telling her family. Except when they knocked on the door of the Wilson home and got no answer, despite all of their cars being in the driveway and the Christmas lights being on, they knew something was very wrong. The door was unlocked and the seasoned officer drew his gun, unsure if someone dangerous was inside of the home. Inside were Kimberly's parents, William, 52, and Rose, 46, and her younger sister, Julia, just 17, who had all been bludgeoned and stabbed to death. Blood splattered the walls and ceilings, and both William and Rose's heads were bludgeoned with such force that their faces were almost unrecognizable. Julia showed signs that she had struggled with her attacker and put up a pretty good fight before finally being beaten to death and stabbed in the throat. It appeared that the family died on the same day that Kimberly did, likely just after she was killed at the park. An investigation into the crime began almost immediately, and police pulled any and all information on the family that they could in hopes of finding a motive for the killing. According to a high school counselor, Kimberly and her parents experienced a few clashes throughout her teen years. In fact, the police were called to the Wilson home less than a week before the murder on a domestic disturbance call. Kimberly and her parents had been fighting with such anger and volume that the neighbors called concern. But if that was the case, why was Kimberly killed along with her family? If it was really all about a family dispute, shouldn't there be a survivor? Police were at a loss for a motive, which, understandably, terrified the locals who were worried that a random murderer was walking amongst them. As they dove into the Wilsons' lives a little deeper, they found that some of Kimberly's friends were involved in what they described as the gothic lifestyle, that several of them were part of a group who liked to hang out at a local Denny's playing games like D&D late into the night. They called themselves the Saturday Night Denny's Club. Now, normally, a society judging a group of teens based on their likes and hobbies would end up being baseless and judgmental. But there were two fringe members who seemed to take the harmless fantasy and desired to make it into a reality. Alex Barigny and David Anderson were both 17-year-old high school dropouts who talked constantly about killing someone. 
Their other friends wrote off their comments, thinking it was either a joke or an effort to show how dark they could be. But the best friends were extremely serious about their desires. Alex came from a divorced family with a software consultant father and an educational assistant mother. Once he dropped out of high school, he spent most of his evenings hanging out at a local bowling alley or at the Denny's, killing time and playing high fantasy games. He had a sword collection, talked about death all of the time, seemed suicidal to those who knew him, and had a violent streak that got him into trouble every now and then. Friends say the boys made jokes about killing the Wilson family for about a year, that Kimberly was on their, quote, hit list of potential victims. Kimberly, who had recently come out to friends as a homosexual, had dated David Anderson on and off for several years and had apparently turned him down when he tried to get into her bed, which is more than likely the reason she was on his hit list. Kimberly even knew about the plan and said she was going to confront the boys to try and dissuade them. As police received all of this information from a number of sources, they had a pretty good idea of what happened the night of January 4th. The boys were called and both claimed to be together playing video games the night of the murder. Police had a shoe print at the scene and asked the boys about their shoes. Alex showed them a pair of his work boots, the only shoes he owned, and they matched the distinctive tread found at the scene of the murder. Alex spoke with investigators, waived his rights, and told them that he and an unnamed accomplice lured Kimberly into the park, killed her, and then, thinking her parents knew who she was meeting, murdered the rest of her family. That this accomplice beat Kimberly while he stabbed her, and that her parents were asleep when they came in and beat them with a baseball bat. That Kimberly was chosen simply because he was in a rut. Just five days after the Wilson's family's bodies were found, Alex Barigny and David Anderson were arrested. Both boys were charged with first-degree murder as adults, and their joint trial was set to begin in October of 1998. However, jury selection was halted when the Supreme Court made a ruling that made it easier for a defendant to claim diminished mental capacity as a defense. Because of this, Alex's lawyers refiled a motion to allow the expert testimony of a psychologist who diagnosed him as bipolar and manic-depressive. The jury found Alex Barigny guilty of all four counts of aggravated first-degree murder and, two months later, sentenced him to four consecutive life terms with no possibility of parole. One week later, David Anderson's trial began. The prosecution painted a story of a lovesick girl and a boy who barely gave her the time of day and borrowed money from her on a number of occasions that she demanded that money back and that flipped a switch in David that made him write her name down as one of his potential victims. He spent about a year planning her murder and the murder of her family. One major difference between Alex and David's case was that Alex admitted to the murder, so his case was pretty straightforward. David, however, was still denying any involvement. Four days into his trial, he asked for a new lawyer on the grounds that his attorney wasn't providing a good enough defense and ignoring his suggestions about how to cross-examine a witness. He was denied. Eventually, the trial ended in a hung jury and had to start all over again. This time, the defense argued that there was indeed a second person at the murder. Last time, they claimed it was all the work of Alex Barigny, but they said that it was an unknown accomplice, not David Anderson. The jury wasn't buying it and had no problem delivering a guilty verdict in his trial after just six hours of deliberation. He was sentenced to four consecutive life terms without the possibility of parole, just like his partner in crime. 
Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on January 5th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. Do you love true crime and food? I'm Sarah. And I'm Becca. And we're the co-hosts of Dietetics After Dark, the podcast where true crime meets food. In each episode, we cover a wide range of fascinating topics like food poisonings, industry deception, food fraud, nutrition scandal, and in some cases, even murder. And as consumers, these stories have the potential to impact all of us. Becca and I use our backgrounds in nutrition and criminology to bring you a new food scandal every second Monday and a bite-sized episode featuring nutrition in the news every second Thursday. Each story will entertain, educate, and amaze you and probably leave you a little hungry. Or not. So if you're interested in true crime and the things that you eat, go hit subscribe now. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And stay up to date by following us on Instagram at Dietetics After Dark.